this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you're speaking. Lord, I'm simply asking for your help this morning, Lord. I, I need you to breathe upon your word because my words don't make a difference, but your word does. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would challenge us. I'm asking that you would change us and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, one of the, one of the most impactful things that I've come across in my study on the fear of the Lord has been Jesus' prayer when, uh, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. One of my favorite things about the disciples is that they didn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to heal the sick. Lord, teach us how to cast out demons or teach us how to raise the dead or teach us how to preach really well. We want to change the world. Their first prayer, actually, that's recorded in the scripture is, Lord, teach us how to pray. And that's where Jesus goes off and he teaches them, gives them this model prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's something that uh, I've taken a lot of mileage out of. But I love how he begins his prayer. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love to pray that prayer. I love to say, uh, Lord, let your kingdom come and let, let Pagosa be a reflection of heaven. Let your will be done here in this church. Let your will be done here in my life. I believe that's a reality that we can have. But I love how that prayer begins with a hallowing of the Father's name. What that means is to regard as holy. There's this, there's this, uh, there's this reverential um, nature of regarding the name of the Lord as holy that precedes the kingdom of God coming in power. And what I believe, friends, for us, is I've been talking about the fear of the Lord being foundational to what the Lord wants to accomplish in our lives here in this community um, and how it's going to be transformative for us, that what he wants to do is so much bigger than what we could comprehend that he first needs a foundation of the fear of the Lord established. Um, I really believe that as we're talking about his kingdom coming, his will being accomplished, it's going to hinge on this place of us revering him and holding him in a right regard. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Well, cool. Um, So we've been discussing the fear of the Lord. We've been talking about how it's uh, foundational for us to live rightly before God. If we want to please the Lord, we're going to have this positive um, attribute that's called the fear of the Lord throughout Scripture. It's mentioned over 300-something times uh, throughout Scripture And it's always in a positive light. How crazy is that? When we're talking about the fear of the Lord. Almost almost 100% of those mentions, it's associated with a particular blessing that comes for the people of God or for the people that fear the Lord. And uh, this morning I was actually, if you look at the title of my message, I had titled my message on the blessings of the fear of the Lord. Um, And I don't think we're actually going to get to those, so that's going to be part two of this message, because my introduction, the Holy Spirit kind of hijacked, and it turned from an introduction into more of an an exposition. And so I want us to jump into the word of the Lord this morning, 
with reverence, but with also anticipation that he's going to do something miraculous. Amen? I want to start with this quote from A.W. Tozer that I read. And uh, it, it kind of sums up where we've been talking about the fear of the Lord and what it is. Because we understand the fear of the Lord is not just being afraid of God. Um, that's something that we have to come to terms with as we read Scripture. His perfect love casts out fear, right? He hasn't given us a spirit of fear of timidity, but rather of, um, of uh, a sound mind, right? We understand this, that this isn't something God doesn't cause us just to be afraid. And uh, I love that about the Lord. Um, but there is, this, there is this concept that's biblical, that we encounter again and again and again and again called the fear of the Lord. And how we've defined it is there is a holy fear of displeasing God. It comes from a place that's rooted in loving God, and it actually comes out of a place, you know, I love God so much, and I'm so in awe of Him, and He's mighty, and He's powerful, and He's awesome. I never want to displease Him. I never want to be removed from that relationship. I never want to live my life in such a way that would ever cause distance to enter in between me and Him. It's a very simple definition. It's more than just reverence. It's more than just honor. There is this terrifying aspect of it, but I believe when we're in right standing with God, the terrifying aspect is that there, we would ever be separated from him, and that's what terrifies us, and that's what helps keep us living in obedience. It's something that Scripture uh, really hits large on. So with that, A.W. Tozer says this about the fear of the Lord. He says, The greatness of God rouses the fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. And I felt like that so perfectly summed up kind of what we've been talking about the last number of weeks and really serves as a good foundational backdrop for what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you guys to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. And you'd be like, Leviticus, Pastor Nate, that's Old Testament, that's Old Covenant. That's like in the first like couple books of the Bible. Aren't we past that? Aren't we under the blood? Aren't we in Jesus now? Yes. And because of that, we have to understand, uh, we have to understand uh, some of these concepts in the Old Testament, and they bring to light realities of the New Covenant, and I'm excited about that. Um, but Leviticus chapter 10 is actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it's kind of a weird one at first glance, but I think as we unpack it and as we study it this morning, uh, you're going to jump on board and be like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Friends, a, a simple way to kind of put this into language with what we're talking about here, with, with what uh, Moses says in verse 3, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Um, by those who come near me, I must be feared. There must be reverence. I must be held in high regard. I must be held in high esteem. I can't be treated as just another common person. 
I'm, I'm holy. You're supposed to treat me as holy. And when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, this is a perfect example, a biblical example of what that looks like. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And we understand this was talking about the priests here, right? This is talking about the Old Testament. But I want you to understand the same is true for us today. Even though we come before the Lord by the blood of Jesus, uh, his nature doesn't change, right? We're not to just disregard him and come before him in some kind of lackadaisical manner. We're still to regard him as holy. We're still to approach him as one that is magnificent and holy and that before all of the people, he's to be glorified. Before the midst of the congregation, he's to be held in glory. And I believe that when we come together in church, when we come together as the corporate body of the saints, especially in the place of worship, in the place of the ministry of the word, when we come together, we should be doing so in a place of reverence because he's good. Because he's deserving. I'm so glad that all of you are here this morning. And I don't want this to come off as as some kind of uh, mean-spirited way, but friends, I believe that if if, if we really believed that the Lord was as good as he is, And that we were actually coming into a service to encounter the very living God and his presence. That our demeanor and the way that we approach him would look different than it does. I say that. I mean, I don't think we would be late to church. If we knew that we were going to be meeting with the holy king of kings that wants to meet with us. I I know that life comes up. Please don't hear my heart about that. Hear my heart. But I believe that if we were to actually live in the fear of the Lord, that we would make meeting with him a priority. That it wouldn't be something that just kind of, we treat it as if we're going to get coffee with a friend. He's holy and he's to be regarded as holy before all the people. He must be glorified. That's unchanging. That's not me, friends. That's the word of the Lord here. You know, I think our culture, or even just the church for that matter, uh, has failed to regard the Lord as holy. Instead, instead, of, instead of regarding him as the all-powerful, omnipotent being that he is, the one who set the earth on its foundation, right? The one who spoke and there was light, right? He said, let there be light and there was light. The one that, 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 that said, let there be water, <laughs> right? And he says, you can come this far and you have to stop. I mean, he created everything we know. He breathed life into humanity. I mean, he created these mountains that we look at, uh, this, this beautiful picturesque scene all around us with the word of his power. And at that same word, he can cast them into the sea. We're talking about the same God that swung stars into the universe, right? He's powerful, we can't even begin to comprehend how good, how powerful, how, how great and awesome he actually is. He's the same God that speaks and things happen, right? When he speaks, it happens. Yet he speaks to us and asks us to do something and we dare to audaciously tell him no. And in his goodness, he doesn't strike us down dead like that, right? But this is the same God that we're supposed to have reverence for. This is the same God that we're supposed to hold in a high regard. 
And friends, I, I, I say this out of a place where I, I, I sense it in my own heart. I sense it in my life that there are areas where he's not regarded as good. And he's not regarded as God. You see, Nadab and Abihu were actually fulfilling uh, their call and their duty of worship. They were going into the presence of the Lord to worship. They were ministering before the Lord, but what they were doing was considered profane by God because they were playing by their rules, not His. And, and the simple truth of the matter, we must worship the Lord on His terms, not ours. Uh, a while back, uh, some of you were with us for it, but uh, I had sensed the Holy Spirit kind of urged me one, one day to take off all the instruments off the platform and I put them all in the middle of the room and we set up the chairs around the room and everybody came in and they were like, ha, ah, I can't sit on the right or the left side. My seat's gone. I have to sit in the circle. And I did a, I, did a, I don't know how long we did it for, but we taught on worship. And we talked on a lot of different aspects of worship. And my, my goal was to under, help people understand that we're not here to sing to them, but we're here to sing to God. And uh, we talked about how we're supposed to raise our hands in worship, why we're supposed to do that. It's not out of a place where I feel better about myself as a pastor because you look more spiritual because you raise your hands. We actually raise our hands in worship because God likes it. And he actually tells us that he likes it in his book. Um, there are aspects of worship and, and people, uh, why do we sing to God? Why do I encourage you to vocally, you yourself, out loud, bless the Lord? Is because he likes it. There are things that he likes that are not based upon your and I preference. Did you know that? You know, for me, I, I hate singing. I can't sing worth a lick. I can't hit the right tune every once in a while lucky and it sounds halfway decent. I don't know how. My wife would be, hey, like, you almost had it there. Um, <laughs> she'll tell me that. It's like, I heard you singing in church today and you were close. <laughs> but most of the guys, friends, I'm not, I, I'll be honest, like, it's not a gifting. I don't understand how it works. I can't make my voice do what my wife can. And uh, <laughs> I say that out of a place, my natural tendency, and for years, I wouldn't sing in church. You know, I'd raise my hands. I'd get excited about God, but Jesus, I love you. But friends, that's not me anymore because as I read this book, I understand that he likes it when I sing, even if it's not on key. <laughs> and so I, I did this teaching and I had so many people tell me, you know, Pastor Nate, you know, it's just not my personality. I'm not loud. I don't like singing. I don't have a voice or yeah, I don't like raising my hands because I feel like, you know, I'm manipulative or something like that. And at the end of the day, all those factors, I'm not trying to diminish what you feel, but uh, at the end of the day, there are things that God likes, and he tells us that he likes them, and we have to worship him based on what he likes, not what we do. Does that make sense? You guys hear me there? That's not me trying to be critical. That's not me trying to judge you or how you worship, um, but it helps bring some teaching when we understand it's not about us, and it is about him, and if we're going to talk like that, then I think we should reflect it as well. But what we experienced with Nadab and Abihu here was that they decided that they were going to bring their own fire before the Lord. Right? They were going to offer something up to him. And we don't really know their intentions. We don't know if they just wanted to be big shots or whatnot. They wanted to worship God at, the, at an inappropriate time or, or whatnot. But what we do know is that the fire that they brought before them was considered profane. 
But what's interesting to me here is I was studying this word. Um, some translations will even call it a strange fire um, or a profane fire. It's not, and I need you to understand here, this wasn't a sacrifice that was like completely detestable in the sense that we might be like, oh man, that's bad, obviously. Right now we're reading the book of Judges and the people of Israel, the judges of Israel, those that are leading God's people, right? Those that are supposed to kind of have maybe an elevated knowledge of what right and wrong is. They're sacrificing their own children to God as burnt offerings because they think that it's going to please the Lord. That's how far Israel was disconnected from their God in the book of Judges. And uh, friends, we're not talking, that's not what they were doing here. It wasn't that kind of detestable fire. This word profane here actually just refers to that it was common, ordinary fire, which was actually uh, considered profane by God because he had set forth specific instruction on the fire that was supposed to be offered at his altar. And it came from him actually consuming a sacrifice. And it was a fire that he himself lit that was supposed to be offered before the Lord. And uh, I need you to understand this here because this is a beautiful Old Testament picture of a new covenant reality for us. Was that what was being brought forth in the way that they were approaching the Lord. They were approaching the Holy of Holies based upon something that, uh, neg- that tried to circumvent the order that God had established. See, God wanted them to come before him with the fire that he lit, right, to, to provide uh, worship in his, in his midst. But the reason why that was such a big deal was that fire was directly associated and related to a sacrifice that was made. And I believe that, that that is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament reality that we can't approach God by our own hands, by our own merit, by what we can do, by what we can conjure up, by how, how good we are. We can't come before the Lord and enter into his presence based upon our own working or something that we do ourselves. In fact, I believe that what we see in an Old Testament picture of here with the story of Nadab and Abihu is they were trying to get to the presence of the Lord without sacrifice. And in the same way, we understand that Jesus was our sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice once and for all uh, that we read about in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going we're gonna to jump there here in just a moment. But the, 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 the big deal for that is, is that we are able to approach the Lord now with boldness, with confidence, because of what Jesus did. And uh, I believe that it's something that we can't treat irreverently. It's something that we can't, uh, we can't go down this road without a healthy fear of the Lord because we'll begin to treat what Jesus did on the cross as common and unnecessary. And I believe it's a picture of the church for so many people that they can come into the presence of the Lord. They can sing songs with the worship team and they can hear messages from the word of God and they can leave unchanged because it's not a big deal for them. And friends, that's not okay. There's never a a moment or there's never a, a place where we can arrive to where God can't be a big deal for us. profane. The word profane simply denotes a meaning of 
treating something holy as common? How often do we profane, uh, how often do we offer profane worship within our church services? I mean, I want you to think about this. You'd be like, I never do that. How many times do we sing songs that we don't really mean? Right? I surrender all. And we haven't given God a thing. How many times do we approach him? And it's simply something that's common. And we treat it as, oh, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. We got to please pastor, so we're here. We don't really want to be here. I don't really think that about you guys. I hope you know that. But that's reality for a lot of people. And I, I'm thankful that I don't feel like that's our church. But <laughs> people that don't want to be here, they just don't come. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Leviticus 10, if we continue to read, verses 9 and 10 offer uh, some really unique perspective. In fact, Leviticus 10.10 has become something of a life first for me, something that has really marked me throughout my years of following Jesus. But Verse 9 says this, this was the command that was given to the priests that were serving in the house of the Lord. It says, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. <laughs> it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You need to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, between the unclean and the clean. Or the way I, I love how um, a different version puts it, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And uh, the reality of this is just so um, kind of mind-boggling to me that we have there, verse 9, there's this instruction to the priests of God, to those that are entering in their pres into the presence of the Lord, to abstain from alcohol. And, uh, you know, this isn't something that I'm going to... Uh, have my hill that I die upon or anything like that. But we live in a culture, especially a church culture specifically nowadays, where it is the rarity if you don't drink. And I want you to know that. As a pastor, I experience this frequently, even amongst other pastors. I get labeled as legalistic. I get labeled as a bigot. All these different things that I'm not living under grace or, or the New Testament reality of the freedom that Jesus bought for us because I don't drink. And I'm not here to say that if you're drinking, you're on your way to hell or if you have a sip of wine here or there. But what I do realize about this particular scripture is that these were the ministers of the Lord that were going in and out of his presence. Right? And the presence of the Lord doesn't change. His standards don't change. So for me, I can infer, if I infer correctly, that if I want to live in a place of continually being in the Lord's presence, that I don't need alcohol to kind of be there to, to persuade me otherwise. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, one of the things that I've learned is that alcohol has been such a big snare for friends of mine. Godly men, you know, I, I, and I'm not saying this, please, please hear this. I just want to offer as practical wisdom. There is nothing that alcohol brings that makes your life better. There's nothing that it brings that makes you a better person. Some of the greatest wisdom I've ever received was from Benjamin Franklin, uh, not the dead guy, but the guy that lives here in town. 
a concrete guy. I think he does toilets now. Um, but <laughs> he, he, he's a deacon over at Restoration, but we were talking many years ago when I was trying to get Kelly's heart, and she was ignoring me. Uh, but we were talking about alcohol and how much I hated it because I've seen it ruin so many families. I've seen it ruin so many different lives. And uh, he says, you know what, Nate? I've never known alcohol to make anyone a better person. I've known it to make a lot of people worse, but I've never known it to make anybody better. And I kind of filed that away as, man, that's just good wisdom. You know, the Bible might not, might not say that if you drink that it's a flat-out sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And I'm, so I, mean, I can't make a scriptural argument for, for any of that, but I just know the harms that it does. I, I know the effects that it has. And I have a hard time seeing how God could receive glory um, from something that just ends with death for so many people. And so I say that um, as a place, I, I draw a hard stance for me and my family. You know, we don't consume alcohol, not out of a place of we want to be holier. Actually, I do want to be holier than most people. But um, it's not out of a place of we want to be better than you or that we want. We, some of my closest friends in ministry, they drink and they have no problem with it. Um, it's not a, I'm just saying from a wisdom standpoint. Guys, why? <laughs> it costs a lot. It doesn't taste that good. And <laughs> it has the very real potential for destroying your life. And if it doesn't destroy your life, I guarantee you, you know somebody's life it has destroyed. So why even give it a chance? Uh, anyway, I'll preach about that a lot. But I, I think it's so interesting here that, 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 that this is int introduced in this context. I wouldn't be surprised if Nadab and Abihu was at, were actually drunk when they decided that they wanted to go minister to the Lord. I mean, think about it. We don't have that written verbatim here, so that's just an inference that I can make from studying the context of Scripture here. But it seems like a strange warning to give, does it not, in the context of all of this? Um, and I think that we would be doing the Lord a great disservice to approach him casually or half-heartedly or, or anything like that. Um, and I, I really think that alcohol is just kind of stupid. So um, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I, for me, I want to live in the presence of the Lord. And if the priest couldn't do it and be in the presence of the Lord, and we're considered priests under the new covenant, man, I just don't want it. But that you may distinguish, 1010, this is the verse that I actually want to talk about. But that you may distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. That's the charge for us. Not the holy and the evil. Not the holy and just the, the outright wrong, the blatantly bad. right? Just the holy and the common. The holy and the ordinary. We have to make a distinguishing uh, definition between the two. Between the unclean and the clean. Because friends, God's called us to be a holy people. He's not called us just to be common. He's called us to be separated and holy unto the Lord. And that's something that, uh, that I love about this passage of Scripture. I've let that mark me. I want to distinguish between the holy and the common. I don't want to fill my life with common things. I mean, they're not bad, but they're just common. I want the overwhelming uh, aspects of my life to be centered around the holy things of God. And that's, to me, a life worth living. Jump with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I should have been looking at my notes because I preached this all out of order. But <laughs> I 
Hebrews chapter 10 is a clear reflection of what we were talking about here in uh, the beginning of uh, Leviticus chapter 10 with what was taking place and how I talked about they tried to sidestep the, the order that God had ordained for offering uh, worship in his presence. And at that point in time, there were only like six people that could come before the presence of the Lord, right? It was Moses, Aaron, and his four sons. And two of those sons died, so then it dropped down to four, like really quickly, right? <laughs> and there was, there was all kinds of steps that you had to go through, the sacrifices that had to be made. And then uh, to actually go into the Holy of Holies, it was something that you could only do once a year. And I mean, it was just this, this right intense regulation. And so Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how Christ was the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all so that we could come before God without having to go through all of these steps that were set into place so that we could approach the Lord. And so the, the first part of Hebrews chapter 10, the first 18 verses talk about how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all, so that we didn't have to come before God based upon some anim animal sacrificial system, but that we could come before God anytime we wanted to based upon who Jesus is, what he did for us, and that we could do so with boldness and confidence. So join with me in verse 19. So before, four people, right, were able to come before the Lord back in Leviticus chapter 10. Now anyone under Christ can approach his throne, which is awesome. <laughs> In verse 19, it says, So dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Notice this. The way that we enter into the presence of the Lord now is through a life-giving way rather than taking life away. Because that's what happened under the old covenant, right? Life had to be ended in order for us to have right standing with God. Now when we come before God, it actually produces life. It's so good. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. I love this challenge. I love this kind of decree or this command for us. Let's go right into the presence of God. Let's not like dilly-dally out in the outer courts. Let's not have to kind of make our way through or hang out at the edges. But let's go straight into the presence of the Lord because we've got clean consciences. Amen? That's good. Stop hanging around the fringes. Jump right in. He's good. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Friends, I can't preach that better than the author of Hebrews already preached it. All of that. <laughs> so, that's so heavy. Let us not neglect meeting together. Let us not neglect the fellowship of the saints. Because some people do that. Let us not kind of make church uh, last on the list of priorities. I know so many people, God, Pastor Nate, you know, I just connect with God better when I'm by myself. 
And I'm, hey, that's good. I'm, I'm sorry that that's the case, but we understand that God created us for fellowship with one another as well. And we understand that he loves his church and that he has a special place for his church. And there's something about us coming together as the people of God, because guess what? In heaven, it's not just going to be you and Jesus. It's going to be the whole fellowship of the saints throughout generations and Jesus, and it's going to be good because God created us to be together. Anyway, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And it would be really good if we stopped right here and just said, boom, that's happy. Let's come near to Jesus, right? But there's a warning that the author of Hebrews gives here in verse 29, or verse 26. We'll get to it in verse 29. But dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if, as if it were uncommon and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's some strong language. Dear friends, if we deliberately keep on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. It's talking about people that have knowledge of the truth here. I know all of you here in the sound of my voice have some knowledge of the truth of the gospel because I've already talked about it. Friends, when we continue to live a life of deliberate sin, it tramples the gift of God. We're no longer holding God in a place of reverence. We're no longer having what we would consider a fear of God. And we wind up actually being afraid of God. I say this because what we read about here, this terrible, this fear of falling into the hands of a living God, that it's a terrible thing. Friends, this is not the fear of the Lord that is referred to as a positive thing throughout the rest of Scripture. See, this is a fear of God. This is a fear of God's judgment. This is a fear of God's punishment. And friends, either we have the fear of God or we have the fear of God's justice. And the fear of God will actually keep us from his judgment in terms of what we're experiencing here. Now, hear me. All of us are going to have to give account someday before God for what we've done, and that should place the fear of God in us, right? 
Whether you're, whether you're saved or whether you live like hell for your entire life, we're all going to have to one day give account. The righteous are going to have to give account for what they did with what God gave them. It's in here. Just because you said a prayer doesn't mean you get off scot-free. Now you're accountable because God's given you resources. And he expects you to do something with what he gives you. The knowledge of his word, the gifts of his spirit, the, the love of his son. He expects you to do something with all of that. And you will have to give an account. You're going to have to stand before a living God. And he's going to say, what did you do? My greatest fear is not to stand before God and have him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. My greatest fear is to stand before God and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, but look at what you could have done if you were simply obedient. And I, I, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm, I, I'm not trying to get, but I want to please the Lord. And my prayer is that you would want to please the Lord. And as we read here, that there is a fearful judgment that will come for those that blatantly rebel against God. Those that knew of God's mercy and chose to continue in sin. And actually, from, from reading here, it's going to be worse for them for the, than those that just didn't ever accept the Lord in the first place. This is talking about they had a knowledge. They had received knowledge of the truth. Yet they continued in their sin. Deliberately. I'm just going to read that again. I don't know if you guys got that. I don't know if it sucked in with you. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. Jesus can't die on the cross again for you, friend. What he did was one time, once and for all. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think of how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy. Right? They're approaching what Jesus did on the cross as common, as it wasn't a big deal because they continued to live their lives as if he didn't. And have insulted and disdained for the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Romans 3 describes the wicked as those that do not have the fear of God before their eyes. This was my introduction to talk about the blessings that come when we fear the Lord. So you'll have to wait for those. But I so want us to understand that this, this idea of the fear of the Lord and the reverence that we're to have for who he is and what he's done for us is not coming out of a place of legalism, it's not coming out of a place where, you know, I just want to be the hellfire and brimstone preacher, you know, ah, the angry guy on the street corner. Friends, it comes from a place because I believe that the goodness of God is so good that we can't afford to miss out on it. 
that the love of God is so tremendous that we can't afford to live without it. That's why I'm talking about the seriousness of this thing called the fear of the Lord. I never want us to get to the place where we're fearful of his judgment against us because we've lacked the fear of the Lord. Because we've not treated him as important. We've not regarded him as holy. Holy Spirit, I, I know that this can seem harsh. I know that it can come across as abrasive, but I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you'd breathe upon your word, that its truth would minister to hearts and spirits right now. Lord, I know that, I, I know that it's hard. I know that it's, it, it's, a, it, it's not the happy thing that we want to, <laughs> want to kind of uh, feel in the moment, but Lord, we so want to have this reverence for you. We so want to have a holy fear of displeasing you. Because we want you to receive glory. We want to be with you, God. We want to have that confidence that we read in Hebrews chapter 10 to approach you with a clean conscience. So, Lord, I'm asking for my friends here. I'm asking for myself that you'd continue to teach us in the fear of the Lord, that we'd continue to grow in it, that we'd continue to have reverence for your name. Lord, in all aspects of our life, Lord, not just in the context of a church service, Lord, in our homes, what we do in our private time, God. Lord, what we think when nobody else knows what we're thinking. this isn't something that can be conjured up by man. But just as we read at the beginning of this service that it comes by your Holy Spirit. So we read about how the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, but that the spirit of the fear of the Lord, in which he delighted, Lord, we're asking for that same Holy Spirit to apprehend us. Because we want to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.